Good morning, everyone. I'm going to be reading from Acts 4 this morning. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew about to 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed." He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. This is the word of God. So we're in Acts chapter four, as Malia read for us just a few minutes ago. We continue our study through the book of Acts, how God took a small band of 120 relatively inconspicuous and uneducated people in a remote part of the world 2,000 years ago, and by transforming them through the work of the gospel, literally transformed the world two centuries from the moments that we're looking at. The Roman Empire will have been on its last legs, and the only thing that will give Rome new life is that the Christians took over the empire. It becomes the Holy Roman Empire, and of course that begins a whole time in history that is still up to much debate, I think God would not want to take credit for a lot of what went on in his name. But the point we're looking at here is that wherever the essence of the true work of Christ, the calling of the church, and the presence of the Holy Spirit exists, God is still in the business of transforming whole societies, whole nations. You know, we look at our country today and we ask, how can God turn this country back to himself? And there are all sorts of opinions as to how to pull that off. I believe what we're learning as we go through the book of Acts is the only true path to this. There are fewer Bible-believing Christians in New England today than there are in the United Kingdom which is considered a post-Christian area. And yet for centuries, Christians have been gathering in these six states, doing their thing, thinking that we're somehow following authentic Christianity, and we're losing ground. We're not transforming society, we're losing society. And then we resort to political maneuvering, and we think we're gonna regain our moral footing by creating laws and by establishing some sort of a political majority. No, all that shows is how far we've come from what God originally intended. Just as in the first century of the church, so it is true today, the only hope for any culture is the grace of God 
made available through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And when we lose focus on that, when we forget the fact that that's not only the heart of our life, that's the heart of our mission, and when we leave the Holy Spirit out of that experience that it becomes tradition, practices that are meaningful to us but more personal than public, and more about the value we get from it than the cause that the gospel is supposed to push us into, then we have lost the real essence of our faith. As a church, we are not the only ones here who are committed to the gospel, but we're establishing a church in what is arguably the least evangelized city in what is now the least evangelized region of the United States. And we want God to bless this. If we want it, then we need to recover the original. We need to be able to look at ourselves and say as much as we know the right thing to believe and as much as we have the truth, it needs to transform us. It needs to empower us. The Holy Spirit needs to get control of our lives in a way that what took place here happens here again. I believe it can. Wouldn't be here today. Wouldn't be putting all this effort. And I know that's true for you. We've banded together around this vision. This is our opportunity to ask God to transform our thinking and to work in our lives. So as we look at these first century Christians, one of the things we're learning is that the church is a movement of God. It's not an organization. We need to organize, yeah. But when the organization and the institution become the essence, we've lost our way. It's the movement of God that we're a part of. That's his church. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. He began at Pentecost. He's still building it today. What we want is for that to happen here. We want this church to grow because God's kingdom's growing, because Jesus' church is growing. We want to see people come to faith in Christ. And today, we look at one of the great obstacles to that and how these early believers overcame it. And that's the whole struggle and reality and inevitability of persecution. This is the first glimpse that what Lou shared with us just a couple of weeks ago in that first scenic overview of the church at the end of chapter two, which concluded that at that point, the early Christians enjoyed the favor of all the people that beautiful little moment where everything seemed just perfect and wonderful, and we all wish, wouldn't that be great if we could just hold on to that? What we're seeing as we move forward is that that part of it is not a given. In fact, Christ promised just the opposite. Persecution will come if you're following Christ. In fact, I would argue that if you're going through your Christian life and you've never suffered in any way because you named the name of Christ, something's wrong. Something's wrong with how you're going about it. It's not missional, that's for sure. Because if you're engaged in bringing the the love of Christ, the message of Christ, the Lord of life to the world around you, there will be opposition. Jesus guaranteed it. Now, the fact that you have opposition doesn't mean you're living your life well. Sometimes we can suffer for stupidity's sake, not for Christ's sake. And there are examples of that, of people who claim to be Christians, who put themselves arrogantly as the voice of judgment and act stupidly and and spitefully, and they suffer. And then they think because they're suffering, they're justified. No, that's not the point. You can suffer for all the wrong reasons. But if you're following Christ, if you're gonna live a life that's on purpose for Christ and the work of the gospel, if you're gonna heed the words of Christ who said, just open your eyes, look up right now, the fields are ripe for harvest. Problem isn't 
God out in the world pointing people to himself. The problem is workers. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth workers, Christ said. And that's still true today. If we're not gathering a harvest in New England, it's not because God has abandoned it. It's because Christians have stopped going into the fields where it's ripe for harvest. We have created obstacles that keep us from engaging with the world the way the Holy Spirit already is. How do we recover that? First of all, we don't presume that when hardship comes, it's something to be avoided. And if we learn to face it properly, God will even redeem that and use it as part of his purpose. That's what we're going to see here. So let's review. Let's go back and first look at what led to this particular event in Luke 4. In chapter 3, we have the first miracle of the apostles. Acts 2 ends, it says that God did many miraculous signs at the hands of the apostles. And then right into chapter 3, Luke gives us an example of those miraculous signs that were distinctly those, as we learned last week, distinctly those types of signs that were given to affirm apostolic authority as speaking for God. Peter and John are going into the temple, and they come across a man who we learn later on had been lame from birth, who was now 40 years old and had for many years been brought to the gate called Beautiful. So people knew him. This was the real deal. Even as we go forward here, no one is challenging the veracity of the miracle. Peter says to the lame man, silver and gold, have I none, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Not only does he walk, he runs, he jumps, and he follows them into the temple. And now they begin preaching, and again, Peter preaches the gospel, the same gospel message that we preach today. Now we come to chapter four. The leaders of the temple come out, and they're alarmed at what takes place. When they arrest Peter and John, it's almost evening. It's why they have to put them in prison rather than take them before the Sanhedrin immediately because Jewish law said you don't try someone after sunset. By the way, they broke their own ruling when they tried Jesus at night. The miracle took place three in the afternoon. So for several hours, Peter and John have both been teaching Jesus Christ at the temple. So now we have these characters that come upon them. In verse one, the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. The priests listed here are those of the many orders of priests. It was their turn to come to the temple and to serve. This was regarded as a great privilege. They looked forward to this, and so for them, this interruption is taking away from that privilege, so they're alarmed. We have the captain of the temple guard. Within the temple, Rome gave the temple guards full authority to arrest and to exercise discipline. The captain of that guard was the second most powerful priest in the whole temple. And then the Sadducees. We're gonna talk about the Sadducees just a little bit. One of the things that will become clear to you as we look through the book of Acts is that the church was birthed in a pluralistic culture. 
Just like today, we live in a pluralistic culture. There's no single truth, no single path to God. Any number of paths can be valid, and we need to respect all of them. That idea, how the early church faced up to the persecution that came from that, is a great lesson to us, because today we also live in a pluralistic society. But at this stage, you might say, well, how is this part of the pluralistic society? This is the temple. This is the Jewish people. Judaism in the first century was far more divided and diverse than you might think. There were four sects that vied for influence in the first century. The first and most famous are the Pharisees, the fundamentalists. They believed that, uh, that Israel was under the Roman might because of their disobedience of the law. And so the Pharisees had created a very legalistic and stringent way of living under the law and trying to enforce that on everyone. We've seen the Pharisees all throughout our study of the Gospels. They had a real problem with Jesus because he was about grace, they were about works. He was about forgiveness, they were about attaining righteousness through human effort. Another group were the Essenes. The Essenes were the mystics. They basically had given up on culture. They believed God had given up on culture, including the Hebrew nation. They created a separate community, pulled themselves out, waiting for God to come and judge everybody else. God, we're all you have left. Those were the Essenes. Then you had the zealots who believed that God needed a little human help to usher in the kingdom. We need to be ready to fight when the Christ comes and to be prepared to help him do battle and overcome our oppressors. And, of course, they saw Rome as the oppressors, and they were the illegal sect because Rome saw them as the real threat, and they were ready to fight. They were ready to fight. Those are three, and the fourth are the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees are the aristocratic landowners in the priest world, the upper echelon. There were very few Sadducees, but they had all the power. The way I was taught as a boy to remember the Sadducees was that they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe there was anything after this life. They believed that God helped you in this life if you lived a righteous life. So they didn't believe in any afterlife. So my dad always taught me they didn't believe in the resurrection. So they were sad, you see. (laughs) Sad, you see. And it stuck with me. And now it's going to stick with you. They were those that had abandoned what we would think of as the orthodox, the, the original teaching of Judaism. They were equivalent, if I could, to most of what we call mainline denominations. Those that at one time were very committed to the gospel but have left it behind for what they think of as a kinder, gentler, less judgmental Christianity where we just do good things. Now here's interesting. The Sadducees were the most powerful sect in the temple. They were the ones that were connected with Rome They were the power families that had compromised with Rome in order to maintain a strong position. It was those Sadducees, when Jesus was doing his miracles, they said, if he keeps going, we're going to lose our place. We're going to lose our position. We're going to lose this temple. All the high priests were Sadducees at this point. Now, Jesus ran into trouble with all four groups, and they united, ultimately, against Jesus. It was the one thing they could agree on. He was a problem, and so they eliminated him. 
It's this group, the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. They come across Peter and John. Now, what is it that they're alarmed about? There's three basic things that they're alarmed about that they're going to take action against. Look at verse 2. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Let me just take them one by one. The thing that first threw them off is that the apostles were actually just teaching the people. They're uncredentialed. They're untrained, and yet they're up there attracting all these crowds, just the fact that these fishermen would dare to stand up in the temple and teach at all was a real problem. Now, interestingly, this is where we see one of the early signs of a great shift from the temple, which is where God was, and where those who were credentialed and part of the right tribes served God on behalf of the people to what the church is. Now we are the temple of God. That's what Pentecost was about. The Holy Spirit dwells in us, but we're also a royal priesthood. Peter himself is the primary teacher when we get into his epistles of this idea, the priesthood of the believer, the ability to speak and to minister as a whole people now. We don't need representatives. God gifts Average, everyday people, even fishermen, even blue-collar, uneducated workers, God gifts with spiritual insight, and they can teach. The apostles were teaching the people. That's the first thing. The second thing is that they were proclaiming Jesus. They had just put Jesus to death. They had eliminated him as a heretic. But here's something else. We often overlook the fact that these Sadducees, the high priests, were those that concocted the story when the temple guard came back. That captain of the temple guard was likely the very one that witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, came back, told the Sadducees who were the high priests, and the high priest said to them, just tell them that, that the disciples came and stole them away. So they know but that's contrary to their philosophy. They don't believe in the resurrection. And it's, it would be extremely inconvenient for them to begin believing in it because everything starts falling down that they've created for themselves. So this isn't just that they're offended that they're teaching Jesus. They, I believe, know that there's some truth there, and they thought they had gotten rid of him. And now here his followers are showing up. So that's very alarming for them on many levels. More than that, not just that they were teaching, not just that they were teaching Jesus, but because of that resurrection, they were teaching the resurrection of the dead for all people. Now we recognize why, for the Sadducees, that was a huge issue. You yield on that, you lose everything. It's clear that no matter what Peter and John say, even though they ultimately can't argue with how they've taught Scripture and the reality of the miracle, really their hearts are hardened they're determined they're not going to yield to this new movement. And so their only thing left is to try to destroy it. That's the nature of the persecution. So they threaten them. Now let's, let's start going through the passage and pull out ways that Peter and John and the other disciples respond to this threat. We're going to begin reading at verse uh, 5. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. We'll talk about the question in a minute. 
So now, let's talk about this larger group. Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had about 71 members at this point in history. You can see the listing of them. The elders who were over significant families and tribes in Israel. The teachers of the law were the scribes. They were those who were experts on the law. And in Judaism, to be an expert on the law is not only to be a spiritual teacher, but a lawyer, because you lived by the Levitical law. But there were also those that actually taught the scripture. You'll notice the name Annas is a different name for high priest than the one previously referred to as Caiaphas. Caiaphas is Annas's son-in-law. Rome had come in, and they didn't quite get along with Annas, and so they deposed him and put Caiaphas in his place. Annas' family was a family of high priests. There had been five sons of Annas who had been high priests. One of his grandsons had been the high priest. They referred to him as the high priest in the same way we still refer to former presidents as Mr. President. It is clear he is the power behind the high priesthood. This is the most powerful family in all of Israel and the most connected to Rome and therefore possibly the most to lose because of this new upstart movement, and they do have the authority to condemn Peter and John to death, just like they did Jesus. They come to Peter and John, and they ask him this question, by what power and in what name did you do this? Now remember, they were not witnesses of the actual miracle. When you say in the name, in what name, they're saying under whose authority? By what authority do you have the right Or are you performing these miracles and doing this teaching? Now we see Peter's response. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given to men by which we must be saved. Now this is the first of three sections of Scripture out of which we're going to call out these eight words that help us understand how to properly respond to persecution and opposition when it comes. But the very first thing is the most important one of all. Everything flows from that. And that grows out of this phrase, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the word I'm going to use is the word submission. Nothing else is possible that will result in God glorifying this and using it for good without Peter being fully surrendered and controlled by the Holy Spirit. And that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Let me take this as an opportunity just to explain that that doctrinal term for you. What does it mean to be filled? We've, We've come across now two different terms. The first is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then the second is the filling of the Holy Spirit. And they are two different things. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, as we saw 
when we studied Pentecost, when we went into the epistles, is that birthing into the body of Christ that occurs by the Holy Spirit, whereby God comes into our lives, we become new creations, and we become part of the family of God. Jesus referred to this in John chapter 3 when he talked to Nicodemus and said, you need to be born of water and the Spirit. Spiritual birth, water birth in Jesus' case, I believe meant physical birth because the water breaks and, and, and you're born. So he's referring to two types of birth, physical birth, but we're all born spiritually apart from God. That part of us needs to come to life. How does that happen? The miraculous work of the Holy Spirit who births us into the body. The reason why we are baptized as new believers by water is because of the symbolic connection that it has with being birthed into a new life. Going into the water and out of it takes the idea of physical birth, water birth, to represent this new life in Christ, the birth into the body of Christ through the Holy Spirit. See, that's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. And Scripture teaches that that happens to every believer upon profession of faith in Christ. So what is filled with the Spirit? There's a lot of confusion related to this. A lot of us think that the Holy Spirit is something like a energy source, like um, fuel oil, gas in your tank, some power, and we can have more or less. And just like my gas tank runs out of gas because I use it up and I have to come back and get a fresh filling of the tank, we have this idea, some of us, that I can lose some of that presence and I have to get refilled with the Holy Spirit. But here's the problem. The Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Godhead. As a Christian, when God moves into your life, listen to me, you have all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to have. So what is filling? Filling is how much access you allow that Holy Spirit to have. Filling is me surrendering to the Holy Spirit completely so that he owns me. I am living under his authority. It's submission to the Holy Spirit. See, I don't need more of the Holy Spirit. That's not what it means to be filled. What I need is more submission to the Holy Spirit so that he invades and controls. Picture my hand going into a glove, but going in like this, so that when it's in, my whole hand is in the glove, but the fingers aren't being controlled by that hand. The areas of your life that you're maintaining control of, the acts of disobedience, the secret sins, the hidden attitudes, the selfishness, all those different things that you insist on taking control of are the areas in your life that the Holy Spirit does not possess. And therefore, you are not filled with the Holy Spirit. It's about surrendering to the Lord. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is a discipline of constant surrendering. I think Jesus was getting at that when he said, if you're gonna come after me, take up your cross. Those who find their own lives will lose them, but those who lose themselves for my sake, they will find life. And he describes that as life to the full, because God is in the whole. So what we see here is that Peter is fully surrendered to God. And without that, you're never going to face persecution appropriately. If you're approaching your Christianity 
on the basis of managing it and making it work for you, the first time you face persecution, you're going to give up on it. Because persecution doesn't work. (laughs) It doesn't work for us when we're just in it for us. When I'm in it for God completely, when he's in control, that's the only hope I have to effectively address persecution. I'm running out of time, aren't I? I think that was very important to deal with. But let's do as much as we can for the next few minutes. The first is submission. The second, he says very clearly, we have done these things by the name of Jesus. We're going to call that clarity. Clarity. What they do is boldly proclaim Jesus in the face of opposition. He doesn't tone down like many of us do. He boldly names Jesus. Listen to me. We suffer in Jesus' name. And in the face of persecution, we should not shy down. It's an opportunity to be clear about who it is we're living for. So, clarity, Jesus. The third thing is courage. He looks right at those who actually killed Jesus. He says, yeah, that Jesus, the one you crucified. There's courage and boldness in the face of physical threat to even his own life. And then salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given to men under heaven whereby you must be saved. That's gospel. So it's interesting that in the face of threats, there's no cowling, there's no softening, there's standing strong, full obedience to the Holy Spirit, clearly naming the name of Jesus, and then proclaiming the truth of the gospel. I think that's very powerful. They go on as a result of this, and they can't argue. They don't argue the miracle. They can't even argue the teaching. And they know now that the people have come around them, and many are going to believe. Now, the best they can do is threaten them with many threats, it says. Their response, verse 18, then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. The word that I've got for there is committed. Committed, even in the face of threats. They know I've got two choices. I can obey you or I can obey God. Which, by the way, is the only real standard for civil disobedience. We can find all sorts of ways to justify disobeying government. But the only real standard in Scripture for civil disobedience is when government requires me to do something that would force me to disobey God or when obeying God forces me to do something that would cause me to disobey governments. That's the only proper standard for civil disobedience, but it's there, and Peter and John executed here. They go on and they continue to threat. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened, for the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. They have finally been released after all these threats. What's the first thing they do? Verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. The word I've got for that is united. They understand the importance of being in spiritual community. 
when we're out there on our own and when we face persecution for the name of Jesus, you will not stand on your own. You're not meant to. They immediately turn back and find strength in the, in the spiritual community where their faith is strong and affirmed and where they are supported. Then it says that they all came together and prayed. And this is their prayer. Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant and our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain and the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one? Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats. We're gonna pause right there before we read the end. In a moment, we're going to read what their prayer was when facing persecution. Now, here's what I think most of us would do. I think most of us would say, Lord, see their threats and save us. (laughs) Lord, see their threats and protect us. Some of us wouldn't even get that far. We'd say, Lord, see their threats. Why? Why do we have to go through this? None of those ideas are present whatsoever in a spirit-filled person. Here's what they pray. Verse 29, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What are they actually saying here? They're saying, I don't care what the threat was. That was so great. Do it again. (laughs) It was so awesome what you did, Father, doing miraculous works. And 2,000 more men, not counting women and children, now it's 5,000 men are the only ones counted, which of course could mean 10,000, 12,000 people have come to faith. And they're saying, Lord, keep doing it. Keep doing it. They understood that the one that they're speaking of was put to death by these very persecutors. And what they're saying ultimately is it's worth it. They're completely committed and surrendered to the cause. And the result at the end of it is this, verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. It's interesting. The place was shaken The house was shaken. They weren't shaken. They were bold. So we start with Peter being fully submitted to the purposes of God and able to face and stay strong, to proclaim the name of Christ, to be courageous in his declaration of the gospel. Going to the people, them together, committing to the sovereign God who saw all of this coming and even used these very threateners along with Herod and Pilate as scripture said, to come against their holy one, Jesus. Those very people, and he said, even that was your plan, sovereign God. So whatever you've got in mind, we're in. Whatever you who are sovereign over all that will happen to us have in mind, we're in, we're in. Give us boldness. Do the miraculous. That is why they were all filled with the Spirit. 
because they all absolutely and completely surrendered. And that's why 200 years later, Rome is conquered by the cross. God can do that today. He can do it in us. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage, um, boy, there's just so much here. And we're gonna see more. We're gonna have to ponder this whole reality of, of opposition to the gospel. We're gonna learn from it. But as we look at this early instance that is really just the warm-up act, we already learn that we on our own would run from this. We would presume that you would deliver us, that you would want to deliver us from hardship because we see our faith as something that promotes our wholeness here. We, we see it for us instead of for you. Father, we want to be part of a movement that is transforming. We want to see the miraculous done in lives all around us. And what we've seen today is that the way that can happen begins with us being fully surrendered to you, emptied that thou shouldest fill me, as the hymn says. And so, Father, we, your children, offer ourselves to you. We ask you to clean out, sweep out those areas in our life that we maintain control of so that you may fill us completely and in filling us, use us for your glory to do wonders in this city through the cross and through the message of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.